it's not just about trying to fix what's wrong with us, but what if we really obsessed about what's right with us and, and how can we use those things to, to our favor and, and our strengths really are, they're energizing and they're essential to who we are and they're effortless. And so I really love looking at like a strengths lens. And so all that collectively is positive psychology, which is a lot of, to explain, but it's a really fascinating field that has a big umbrella of what's under it. And really, if you're looking at what makes life worth living, there's a lot. And so it looks at relationships and things like meaning and purpose. It looks like achievement. So what are the things that we wish we had done? We regret those more than the things that we have done that we wish we didn't do. It looks at the role of positive emotion because our brains work differently in a positive state. And so it's not that we want to be happy all the time. Actually, that's terrible advice. Hello, and welcome to the Emotional Expedition Podcast. I'm Meg Thomas, and if you want to live a more open-hearted, magical life, it all starts with your emotions. This podcast will take you on a journey, helping you to better understand, express, release, and heal your emotions. Let's get exploring. I'm so excited to have Jamie Weisberg here. She's the founder of Northbound, where she creates resilience and well-being trainings for organizations. She's an incredible positive psychology coach, and we're going to go into what positive psychology is today. She holds public workshops and has an incredible new space coming to support your well-being in central New York. I love this definition I found on Jamie's website, a human potentialist. (laughs) She mixes science and passion and heart to bring out the very best in everyone she works with. And I'm so grateful to have you here with us today. So welcome, Jamie. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I know that sometimes podcast interviewers put those in at the end. So to just listen and bear witness to you introducing me is very onerous. So thank you for Mm. sharing all that about me. So it's Mm. nice to be here. Yay. Yeah. We want to know about positive psychology, but first we want to know how did you get there? So tell us about your childhood. What were you like as a child? What was little Jamie like? (laughs) Well, it was a cold day in November. No, I'm just kidding. Well, okay. That's a, that's a big question to kind of rewind to what was little Jamie like? Little Jamie was one of four children before my mom got remarried and I had sisters, but I had three older brothers. So I think, you know, this is called the emotional expedition. I think as a child, maybe I didn't, I wanted to explore, but I think emotion when you're a child and uh, have lots of brothers, you don't necessarily express some of the things maybe that you wanted to at that time. So I think I think my emotional journey as a kid was confusing at times, I guess I would say to start with being the only female and having big emotions. I guess I've always had really, really large emotions. I'm, I would consider myself an empath and I don't think I always 
knew how to use them or what to do with them. And I kind of joke, but I really think I've probably been on a, I've had a lifelong existential crisis, if that's possible. I don't know (laughs) if you can have it throughout your whole life, but just as a little kid, I just always remember being really curious, being a seeker, wondering why I was there and, and what this life was about. So I guess kind of a mix of kind of suppressing emotion at time, I would say probably because I wanted to be strong and and a little bit tough like my brothers. And I don't know, I'm a kid of the eighties. So there's a song called Jamie's crying. I don't know if you remember this song. Uh, it's, a, it's like, I, I won't attempt to sing it, but it's like about someone crying. And so whenever I cried from my brothers would say, whoa, whoa, Jamie's crying. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> not the song again. So I think I had this kind of mix between feeling big emotions, probably suppressing them a lot as a kid. And then just this general curiosity about the world and why I was in it. So I guess that's part of me, but there's also, I think I've always been innately hopeful. I think we all have a disposition we're born into this world with, and there's a bit of a genetic lottery at times of, of things we come into the world with. And I think I was gifted with No matter what happened, I do always have a way of tapping into hope and Mm -hmm. positive psychology. And a lot of the work I do is a very hopeful science. So I think I, it's kind of a mix of who I am coming to surface over many years of exploration. And uh, yeah, so little Jamie was hopeful yet, maybe not really super in touch with their emotions at time, because I don't think I felt super comfortable showing them when I was a little kid at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think so many of us grow up in homes, especially in the 80s, right? Where we, it wasn't normal to be practicing and sharing our emotions in these big ways. And for us, really sensitive souls, that could have been a challenging time to navigate. Okay. I have these really big emotions. And you were also with a lot of brothers. Yeah. And so you have that experience of them holding that masculine energy and you having this deeply feminine energy within you, right? Yeah. And and my brothers are amazing and they're actually all quite, I would say, emotionally aware and in touch with their feelings. But I think at that time, especially in the eighties, there was some pretty cultured gender roles that we were all kind of fed. And part of my learning as a kid was just that uncomfortable emotions maybe weren't to be shown a lot. I I don't know. I just think I, not that anyone particularly told me that or that my brothers ever said that, but I think I wasn't quite comfortable with them myself at times. And I think Mm -hmm. I probably then just took on some of those norms of what I saw and and witnessed too. So yeah, it was a, a kind of a mix because I had big feelings. I just didn't necessarily show them for sure. What was it you were studying when you went to Cornell and how did you get to that place of choosing that to study? So I already know, but we'll we'll yeah. share with the listeners what it what it was your your field of study was. Yeah. So I studied human development and developmental psychology. And I think it was a mix of both that kind of seeker in me that wanted to understand the human condition, wanted to understand all these feelings inside of me, wanted to kind of figure out why why we're here in a a sense and, and how we can live here better. I also was always the person that maybe I wasn't the best at showing my own emotions, but I was really good at sitting with other people's emotions and being there for other people. So 
I always naturally kind of leaned into this role of helper or secret keeper, had a head full of everyone's secrets and just kind of had this place where I felt really comfortable in the role as supporter and helper and just innately wanted to help. So I think I originally thought that I would become a therapist or a clinical psychologist, get my master's in social work after that, or a PhD in psychology and help, and then use psychology, which is, you know, this study of our thinking and, our, and, and the way we see the world and be able to use that to help each other people live a better life. I also just, I think maybe one of my gifts in the world, I think we all have gifts. I think one of my gifts is... And it might stem from some of my empathy, but I really can meet people where they are. And I think I have a, an ability to see the best in other people in their gifts. So my gift is maybe to see other people's gifts. And I think all of that coupled, this kind of curiosity about the world, this seeker, this helper, this child that didn't maybe know what to do with all of this stuff inside of her kind of all came together into this curious space of studying psychology, the human condition, and then ultimately uh, which led me to positive psychology, but much later down the road. Yeah, I love that because when I think to myself of, I'm not sure if you you know went to school right away, but when I think of my 18 year old self, like personal development and self awareness wasn't a part of how I expressed myself was through art, and I ended up mm-hmm. going to school for art, and so it was all related to emotions, but it was more for me working out what it was I was feeling, and so to go into that field like that is really remarkable. Was that around eighteen, nineteen? Did you go to school right away, or I did, but there was a little bit of a journey from the Cornell was not my first school, so oh, I think okay, the mm-hmm. end result that you know the yeah top of the mountain, the peak, we see where people end up. There was a few schools in between, a lot of seeking before I got there. Mm. And originally though, I study, I I did always have a fascination with thinking, I guess. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I was always a thinker and I always was thinking about my thinking and trying to process things and understand things. So my first study, when I originally went to school, I did seek out like a liberal arts kind of mm-hmm. different psychology, sociology, social sciences. I've always been interested in that. So yeah, I guess it's just innately that's just who I've always been is a yeah. is a someone that's that thinks a lot sometimes mm-hmm. to my own demise at times. I I think you can think yourself into some interesting places, but yeah, so that really was just I kind of knew, I didn't know exactly, but I just knew that I wanted to help other people. I knew that I was curious about the world and humans, and I knew I wanted to help myself. I think first, I think we all kind of come into things because we need our own ways of processing the world. So I think I wanted to be able to understand the world and kind of my place in it, but also help other people do the same. So after your experience at Cornell, what did that lead you to do for work? Did you go to further schooling? Where where did that take us? Sure. Well, it took me into what I call an accidental career. I don't know if I had <laughs> one of those, but I had kind of a, a over a decade long accidental career. I don't really believe in accidents. I think we're all meant to be where we're supposed to be, but it certainly wasn't the projection or where I thought I was going. So ironically, my senior year at Cornell, I had to take a class a statistics class. And the whole statistics class, 
course, in psychology, you need to know stats, but I really thought I was going to be a therapist. And the whole class, I said, I don't need to know statistics. I'm not going to be a researcher. And we spent the whole class learning this professor's software. And I remember saying the exact words, I will never use statistical software. And then I spent over a decade selling statistical software. So <laughs> you never know where you're you're going to go. So I had this career after college. I, like many, had to start paying back loans. I had a little bit of a journey to get to to Cornell. So there was, there's quite a, a, mm-hmm. a accumulated pile of, of financing that had happened in that process. So I needed a job and I tried a few things. I was living in Ithaca and I ended up at this software company and it was a small company, but it was growing. It literally was in a building where they cut the side of the building off and attached a trailer. And I walked in and it was just this really exciting energy and I could see the growth there. And I just, needed a job, to be honest. I wasn't trying to, you know, find my purpose in that moment. I was just trying to pay my student loans back. And I ended up with this company that I grew with over the years. I ended up traveling all over, up and down, mostly the East Coast of Canada and the US, but across the country, selling software. And it seemed like a really odd place for me to be. I was uh, in this, I had this desire to help other people. I was curious about life. But I did get to explore a lot in that job. I, I met people in all different work. It was an add-in to Excel. So anyone that made a spreadsheet could use the software. And I was worked with the government and the military and Fortune 500s and small little practices and actuaries and people that did all these things that were just not the side of my brain. I was very much a language and arts kind of person. And this was math and technology <laughs> and, and just really made me exercise this other part of my brain. But I really did learn a lot in that process. And I do think I was learning exactly what I needed to learn in those times. I was learning a lot about human connection. I was learning a lot about people's desires and the way that they showed up to work and the way that I would show up to work and kind of play in some essence a role, but it was this human connection piece that I always really came back to. I was I was certainly not a statistician. I certainly, you know, was not a, a tech person per se, but I was able to just connect with people in all these different ways. And just, we have a very common human experience, all of us. And I just learned so much from a business perspective, from a human perspective, from a personal growth perspective of being really uncomfortable and showing up at these companies where I thought people were way smarter than me and and would never want to talk to me. And really, they just want to talk about their kids and their life and and being the best at what they, you know, showing up and, and being better each day a little bit. So I learned a lot from that space, but in the process, I guess, to kind of come back to how I got to where I am, because this is a little bit of a pit stop, but I think also, I don't even know if it's a pit stop. I would say it's part of the path, but I, along the way, had heard this TED Talk. I'm a big, yeah, I think anyone that's in these growth spaces loves TED Talks. And so I had heard this TED Talk about 10 years ago by a man named Sean Aker. And it was a TED Talk about positive psychology. And I'd never heard the term. I didn't know anyone in the field. I didn't know what you did with positive psychology. I, I had really no idea. But in that moment, I knew that I wanted to work in it. I knew that I was, Mm. that was my path. I had just this all kind of a joke, but like the heavens opening moment of, oh, this is what I was looking for and meant to be doing. I just didn't know it existed. And I've kind of was doing that in my own way, but didn't know at the time. And so once I found out about positive psychology, 
I realized that I probably never went back to school to become a therapist because that wasn't actually the side of the science that I was most connected to and felt was most my way of leaning into the world. I mentioned that I think one of my gifts is to see the strengths and gifts in others. And it's really a strengths-based science that really recognizes what, you know, we all hold these strengths innately that we all have and not just focusing on correction, but really focusing on elevation and and coming from where we are to to where we want to be. So, yeah. So once I found out about that, there's a whole other journey that then ensued for me to get from a software salesperson and <laughs> physical risk analysis software to a positive psychology practitioner. So there's certainly a whole bunch of steps in between there, but for the sake of not boring people with the whole process, I just really kept seeking things out and kept doing what felt right. And I look back, looking back, I can see the path to where I am, but certainly couldn't see it while I was on it. I just kept journeying and, and finding new resources and new programs I could take and new people I would meet and seem, you know, when the the student is ready, the teacher appears kind of thing. And I just kept finding things and figuring this out until I now look back and have this whole thing, I, I you know, this whole business, this practice, this new thing I'm opening, but I couldn't really see it at the time. I just kept mm-hmm. doing the next right step for me. And I think that's so important. We've all seen these memes where we think progress looks like point A to point B to point C, and it's a straight line. But in reality, it's this mess, this mess of circles and ups and downs. (laughs) It's a terrible mess. And I'll say, you know, people see you have a Cornell degree, you ran a marathon, you did all these things. If I could tell you the things in between those processes, or you have a business, it's certainly not linear and it was not pretty. And they were messy. It was super messy and unknown. And I still don't know where I'm going, to be honest. I just (laughs) keep doing what feels right. And I do believe in that, that ultimately, if you keep leaning into those feelings, that the people, the situations, the next right things keep showing up. And I think it's when you stop listening to those Mm -hmm. voices or those feelings um, and something, you know, taking it full circle from that child that didn't really know what to do with all those feelings and suppressed a lot of them it's been a lifelong journey to embrace them and understand them and use them as guides and now do work around it and actually teach other people to help work Mm -hmm. with their emotions and feelings. So, yeah. You are hitting on something that I think is so important and has been my journey as well is the path for me only reveals itself like one step at a time. Like Mm -hmm. by you just saying like, I don't even know entirely where we're going. We're just doing the next right thing. And that moment for you hearing that TED talk lit something up in you, made you feel a certain way in your body. And you know, "Mm, I need to explore this a little more. Here's the next piece. I don't know Mm -hmm. what the whole path looks like. This is just the next right thing for me. And that's how I'm living my life as well. That was how this podcast happened was this was the next right thing. But there was a really messy, challenging two years leading up to the next right thing for me. So there's this period of time that I want to highlight because you're also also shining a light on is, yes, we can look at the Cornell. That's the peak. That's the top of the mountain. We can look at the marathon. That's the peak. That's what we see on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what people are showing us. They're showing the peaks versus the valleys, which is our actual experience of life. It took me 
two years to figure out what the next right step was. And all of that time, I was kind of felt like I was swimming upstream of Mm -hmm. like trying different things, feeling okay, until for me, I call it my intuition, that inner knowing of here's the next piece of the puzzle. And that's what I hear about your journey is you're very conscious of both the light and the dark, both the highs and the lows. And I think it's really discouraging when we're in those periods of time when we don't know what's next for mm-hmm. us. And for me, it's a, it's a body sensation. It's And not everybody is that way. So I'd love to hear how you know it. For me, it's a feeling. It is a gut feeling. I feel it in my body. I feel it in my gut, in my belly. I feel it in my heart of like, it's almost like this ding, ding, ding. Okay, this is exciting you right now. Like do more of this, lean into this, explore this. How does it feel for you to know what the next step is? Is it a body feeling? Is it a knowing? What is that like? It's both. It's a full body knowing. It's it's mm. something that I can feel when it's a definite yes, it's fully a yes and it's in my body. No's are something I've had to really get better at recognizing because I, as a giver and a doer and a caretaker and a lover with all the things I sometimes, if I, sometimes I want to also to be a yes, and I'm used to giving yeses. And sometimes the no's, they're actually smaller nudges of, of little like pings of like, no, that's not quite right. Or no, you really don't want to do that, but you're saying yes to this or, you know, the, they're a little more subtle. I think I'm such a, I'm a possibility seeker. And I I, think the yeses I can feel really strongly. The no's I have to really listen for and quiet down for. And they're so important, but I think as part of my even identity as someone that helps other people, sometimes I push those no's away or take on things that maybe aren't the best fit for me. And some of those no's have been really important though to learn from. So I think I have to listen a little more subtly for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That has been a lifelong lesson for me and how I'm now, what I've learned about myself is whenever I hear a new idea or new something or somebody asks something of me, it's like, it's all shiny and exciting in the delivery, right? <laughs> when somebody asks them, Oh yeah, like I can do that. Like, Oh, that would be great. So I no longer say yes in the moment. I now am like, for me, I need a moment to pause and check in what I feel because sometimes what I'm feeling in the moment isn't truth. Like, isn't yeah, yeah. I need to actually step away to process and feel what I'm feeling. And maybe it's because I can feel other people's emotions. So like that gets co-mingled in. I don't really know. I haven't explored what that is, but I know how I have started to learn what my nose are more easily is by saying, I'll get back to you or I'll tell you tomorrow if I can do that or not. Give me a moment to think about that. And for some people, that's uncomfortable to hear and to receive. But I know for me, I have gotten myself in so many pickles and situations where I have said yes, when really it was a no. And yeah, it's harder to get out of that than it is to have the uncomfortable pause, right? Yes. In the workplace, they call that a safety stop where you like stop before you just write that email or you stop before you just whatever emotion that's coming up is coming up. And I do think 
especially for creatives or, or, or people that are just believe in different possibilities, there's kind of this space at the top of the funnel that's really creative and interesting and, oh yeah, we could do that. Let's do that. That sounds great. But then when it comes down to the the thin part of the funnel where you actually have to li- deliver or fit it into your schedule mm. or fit it emotionally into your landscape of things to do, it might not be quite the same as it felt in that moment. So that's that's mm. a good thing to, to do sometimes is let me get back to you. That's a great, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a great response. Mm-hmm. Give, me, give me a minute, please. Yeah. Mm. Can you tell us what is positive psychology? Can you help us define and understand what that is when you say that? Sure. I think it's really important to first also define what it's not. Yes. The name has a lot of misnomers. It's Mm -hmm. called, I'd say probably most people that work in the field are are familiar with it, probably think it's not the most accurate name for what it is or particularly like it just because people often think positive psychology is about positive thinking or manifesting. Mm -hmm. There's certainly an element of understanding the benefits of optimism or positive emotion in their places, but positive psychology is actually a field of psychology. So Mm -hmm. just like we have cognitive psychology or behavioral psychology, social psychology, positive psychology is a field of psychology. And there's lots of ways to understand it. Some people call it the scientific study of well-being. Some people call it the scientific study of human flourishing or optimal human functioning. Others call it the science of what makes life worth living, which I kind of love. And where its roots came from is that traditional psychology's focus was very much about diagnosing, treating, and categorizing mental illness. Certainly something we, we need, something I've I've worked with therapists over many years myself. And, but really what we we're finding is we we're only getting people up to a neutral point. So if we were able to successfully treat depression, that's wonderful. And it means you're no longer depressed, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're happy. It just means you're not depressed. And so we were getting people up to kind of a place of surviving, but we weren't really north of neutral, getting people to a place of thriving and flourishing. And which is also why my company is called Northbound, helping people kind of move up that that trajectory that we're kind of always on a we never I don't think there's ever a destination where we're just finally there. I think we're northbound. We're 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 seeking, we're we're going towards a place of thriving. And but we also dip below. It's also the study of resilience. How do we did not dip south of neutral and maybe not need the, the to seek out traditional psychological resources? And also we'd become really good at studying what could go wrong. Nobody was really studying what could go right. And, and mm. what are the strengths that we all innately hold? And so there's kind of a counter manual to the DSM, which is the, the book that diagnoses all different types of mental illness. There was a, brain, a book called the book of character strengths and virtues that was created that really looked at what are these strengths that we all innately hold. And they looked at things from the Girl Scout code to the Quran to remote villages and to all these places and looked at what is it that we all, what are the best parts of being human that we all have? And that it's not just about trying to fix what's wrong with us, but what if we really obsessed about what's right with us and, and how can we use those things to, to our favor? And, and our strengths really are, they're energizing and they're essential to who we are and they're effortless. And so I really love looking at like a strengths lens. And so all that collectively is positive psychology, which is a lot to explain, but it's a really 
fascinating field that has a big umbrella of what's under it. And really, if you're looking at what makes life worth living, there's a lot. And so it looks at relationships and things like meaning and purpose. It looks like achievement. So what are the things that we wish we had done? We regret those more than the things that we have done that we wish we didn't do. It looks at the role of positive emotion because our brains work differently in a positive state. And so it's not that we want to be happy all the time. Actually, that's terrible advice. We we want to experience all emotions. All emotions have value. If you look at anger, it helps you set boundaries. If you look at sadness, it helps us process loss. If you look at worry, it helps us prepare. Everything has their all emotions are good. Some of them are uncomfortable, but they're all good for us in some way. So it looks at really the human experience, the permission to be fully human. And um, how do we flourish in this one life that we all, we all live? That's, <laughs> that's not the short answer, but that's, that's no, that's great. Because I think also what we're coming up against in our culture, I'm so grateful for your definition and, and explaining it because I think in our culture, we are having some experiences of this toxic positivity, absolutely, which is like good vibes only. We only want to feel the good feelings. We want to, you know, suppress the bad emotions and only be focusing and moving on the positive emotions to feel good all the time. Yeah. And so I'm so grateful to hear that difference. What you're saying is... We're not about suppressing the anger, the rage, betrayal, any of those harder, the grief. We're not about that. But what was lacking in that field was a focus on the good as well. And I'm thinking of little Jamie and you using the word hope and hopeful. And and I'm seeing how you have found a field that is perfect for you because it's it feels like the embodiment of hope. It's okay, let's still have this going through the experience of the more challenging emotions, but what does the other side of that look like? Am I getting that right? Or yeah, absolutely. It is extremely hopeful. I think in the sense that it gives value to all emotions, but it also gives us awareness that that there are things that we have fully in our in our control. There's certainly things we have absolutely outside of our control. There there are things that we are born into, whether it's you know our socioeconomic status, all sorts of things that we we don't have choice over. Certain things that we are born into, but there is a lot of choice in this science around the way that we perceive the world. I love the quote by William James. He says, my experience is what I agree to attend to. And if we can kind of see that full spectrum, that actually it's those dark moments that bring some really light moments. If we can understand that all emotions have value and that we should be feeling them, it gives us more self-compassion when we get stuck in them or when we don't know how to work with them. I think it just gives us tools. It gives us awareness it gives us hope that people actually want to study how we can live a better life. I mean, there's people out there actually putting that into to practice for all people. And the biggest message in positive psychology really is about relationships. I mean, all the studies in the world on what makes life worth living, at some point, you're going to kind of come back down to human connection and relationships. And there's some really fascinating studies there's one in particular that's looked at humans over 
the longest study of humans that's been conducted, usually the directors drop out or the participants drop out, but it's it's called the Harvard Men's Study. Some people call it, it's called the study of adult development. And it looked at two groups of people. It looked at impoverished boys in a neighborhood in Boston, and it also mm-hmm. looked at students at Harvard. So two people coming from very different spaces, one very impoverished, one a bit more privileged, at least they were able to access the education. I don't know if all of them were born into privilege, but they were able to access this education. And out of all the studies they followed their children, it's still now in this fourth director, the single biggest predictor of human happiness, quote unquote, because I think that's a very specific, you know, that's as unique to us as our fingerprints. I mean, the single biggest predictor of our well-being, of our of our livelihood, and also our physical health is the quality of relationships that we have with other people, period. Everything else, wealth, fame, even physical fitness, other things that you would think would lead to more, you know, well-being. It's really the quality of the relationships that we have with other people. And so I think that's hopeful in itself, that it's it's about people, it's about connection, it's about relationships. How does the positive psychology help you with relationships? Mm-hmm. Is it the lens at which you're looking through? How does it help you connect? Yeah, I think first it gives you the awareness to even care about them and prioritize them. I think mm-hmm. we get so much advice to work on our physical health and work on our spiritual health and our financial health and all these places, which certainly I feel like we we certainly have value and we should, but I don't hear a lot of talk about how do we work on our relational health? How do we really prioritize human connection and our relationships? And so I think first and foremost, it just gives us this awareness of relationships being our strongest form of currency. I really do think that that in itself sets the lens, but it also, there's all sorts of things in the field that really teach us how to connect better, how to understand people, how to understand our own emotions and other people's emotional intelligence. There's even things like the trust equation or understanding, you know, how we relate all sorts of things about our biochemistry and human connection and how I really think that's a big part of the amount of anxiety that people are experiencing these days is a lack of certain hormones and things that we produce when we're in connection, like oxytocin, you know, mm-hmm. when we're with other people, if we're holding hands or partner dancing or getting massage, or even in an in intimate conversation, we, we all produce oxytocin, which is our common connect hormone, which tells us that things are safe and it counters our flight or flight response. And it's, I think one of the reasons that there's more anxiety is because there's just less human connection and uh, less of that, those the biochemistry saying that everything's okay and that calming sensation that oxytocin produces. There's a quota that says some researcher, I don't remember his name, but he just said, uh, you need eight hugs a day for optimal health. So it's one of my big, my favorite quotas. So even if you can't hug someone else, you can, there's something called havening where you can use like a psychosomatic process where you can kind of soothe yourself through touch, but there's I definitely, if you can hug someone or pet a dog, I'm all for that is part of your healthcare plan. Can you share what havening looks like? Do you? Sure. You I'm thinking? not. Yes. I have some friends that are certified and I'm not a certified havening practitioner, but. Okay. It's, I did, I've i never even heard this term before. Oh, so, well, I'm uh-huh. happy to expose you to it. So yeah. it's a 
psychosensory process that it's supposed to help with trauma. There's actually a whole, you can be guided through this process, but there's some simple self-havening techniques you can do. So if you can find a certified havening practitioner, if you have experienced trauma in your life, I absolutely recommend it's a profoundly impactful research technique that can help some similar, you know, people have probably heard more of tapping or other types of mm-hmm. psychosensory processes, but havening is one that you can be guided through with a certified havening practitioner, or you can do it to yourself. And there's just a few moves that if you're feeling really overwhelmed or anxious, you can do it at your desk. So, cause there's some you can do like with your hands. So there's three main moves. One of them is with your hands. People can't see this on the, So at least if I can visually, if I can auditorily explain this. So if you take your hands and you kind of rub them back and forth on each other in a kind of rhythmic pattern, that's one of them. There's two others. If you cross your arms, starting with your hands at your shoulders and you bring them down to your elbows and just in a pattern, rub down, rub down, rub down. And then the other one is top of your forehead down to your to your pointer finger and your middle finger top of your forehead and you rub down to your chin and these actions are supposed to it kind of just it's a grounding process in some ways similar to when you're anxious and if you're just walking around naming objects or kind of takes you out of those processes but there's also something in the pattern of the movement that is very healing and when you're guided through the process, which I'm not an expert, but you should get a havening expert. Yes, here, we will. We will tell you all sorts of things about it. They guide you through, you're doing the motions, but they're also taking you through, uh, uh, they have you recall certain memories and count backwards or do certain things it, along with these things that can actually break. And this is just from, I, I'm not an expert in this field, so this is not a scientific explanation, but kind of like there's some sort of trauma loop that trauma gets encoded in. And with this process, it helps like break that loop somehow. So yeah, I would definitely recommend if people to seek it out, but you can self-haven. So if you can't get eight hugs a day, I definitely certain things to really calm yourself down. And I do this all the time, especially the, this one, because you can do it right under your desk or when no one's looking, you don't have to put your hands on your face. And sometimes I'll just be in conversation and feeling anxious. And I'm just doing this again. Your listeners can't see what I'm doing. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> we will we will put either a video or some images. We will put it in the show notes so people awesome. can experience that. If somebody is feeling that intuitive pull towards learning more about positive psychology, where do you recommend someone starts? Sure. Yeah. So I studied where many of my main certifications are, and I actually work there part-time, not intending to promote this, but I, yeah. I work. there's a place called the Flourishing Center. It's based out of Manhattan. There's programs used to be offered in different locations throughout the U.S. and Canada, but all the programs are now online. There's some introductory programs and things that you can experience positive psychology or learn about it, all the way to more formalized certifications and training. There's a program called the Certificate in Applied Positive Psychology that's really wonderful from there. Also, a lot of work comes out of the University of Pennsylvania. So they have a master's degree there called the Master's in Applied Positive Psychology. 
lots of others, something called the Greater Good Science Center. That's out of Berkeley, I believe. And it's a wonderful resource for all sorts of, you can get on their newsletter. They send all sorts of great articles. There's a lot of places, but yeah, those are a few mm-hmm. to start, I would say. Yeah. Great. And how does this, for many of us, I know myself, this experience of like dark night of the soul, right? Where we have these more challenging periods in our lives. Mm-hmm. I know you're human, so I know you've had some of them yourself. Sure, of course, many. <laughs> right? <laughs> so how does this this field of study, how does the work that you do, and because I know you, I know that who you are is so much even more than just positive psychology, like what you bring to the table and how you work with people. So I don't want to limit it to just that language. What are some practices, whether it's for you personally Mm -hmm. or for clients that you work with, that you help navigate those challenging times through? Yeah. So... Positive psychology is a descriptive science, not a prescriptive science. So Mm. it's not a take two of these and call me in the morning, easy answer to a question like that. It's a lot of some things work for some people some of the time. (laughs) And I think that it really depends for the person, what they're going through, what they need, what their unique kind of well-being fingerprint looks like. Some people need more grounding in practices like gratitude or working with their thoughts. Other people need more support around emotional digestion and being able to notice, name, and navigate the emotions that are coming to them. Other people need more slowing down and more practices around meditation or savoring or mindfulness. There's so many different pieces and parts to this, but I do love the definition of resilience as struggling well And this idea that every single one of us struggles. And sometimes I even believe it's, there's a a term called dialectic, which I really love. It's kind of this idea without darkness, there is no light, you know, that grief is the price tag for love, that, that all these things don't exist without the other. And so I also think of struggle and hard motions or uncomfortable ones is mutually exclusive. Like they, they, that infinity of one creates the other and that we need to, to understand those. So even just starting with like a lens of self-compassion and simply under, like just awareness in, in general, that these things are all okay, that everyone struggles, that, that life sometimes is not only hard, but sometimes that, that those darkest nights do produce the brightest stars and mm. the, so I think it's it's unique to each person and there's so many tools I, I, mm-hmm. in the field, but I think just starting with people being able to be more aware of, of what they're feeling, of, of what they're wanting, of, of listening and, and then kind of meeting people where they are. You can't really, there is no one prescription fits all, but the science really does have something for everyone to try to answer that question of how do I feel better every day? How do I live how do I show up as a person I want to each day? How do I live a little more aligned with, with how I want to? And so I think that the science has so much to offer. And I think it's even just anyone that comes to that exploration is at a part of their process where they're ready to, again, like we were talking about that path where you 
don't know what's coming next, but you're just taking steps. And I think a lot of people come to the positive psychology, whether they're self-studying or or wanting to make work out of it, they're coming at some point in their journey because they're ready to ask new questions and they're ready to figure out, you know, what else is out there. Just like that was little me trying to figure out what else is out there and, and feeling hopeful about it, but also not really understanding what to do with all of these things I was feeling. And I think a lot of people also don't know what to do with what they're feeling. And yeah, so it's just, it's not a roadmap per se, but it's yep. maybe a a field guide where there's mm-hmm. lots of places you can go. You just got to find the the path that's right for you and where you're at. I absolutely love that answer because that's my intention for this podcast is there are thousands and thousands of ways of healing and healing emotion and trauma in the body and and living your best wholehearted life. This podcast is a place that I'm just going to shine a light on as many different paths there. And if something resonates for someone, it's like, oh yeah, lean in closer, be curious, try and understand more about this. You use this term that I've never heard that totally, you know, lit up in me was emotional digestion. Can you, Mm. what does that mean? Yeah. So emotional digestion is being able to first be aware of the emotion. So noticing it, that it's even there. So for feeling, you know, emotion, as you know, I know that you've done all sorts of deep dives into the language around emotion and and Brene's work. And so even just to notice the emotion first, because we're so busy and we're also really good at kind of pushing emotion away. So Mm -hmm. there's kind of three steps in the digestion process. Just like if we're going to eat food, we want to not suppress it or repel it. Like we don't want to just let it sit in our stomach forever, but we also don't want to throw it back up. We want to, you know, take what we need from it and expel it in some ways. So kind of noticing the emotion first of what's coming up for you, naming it, being able to, oh yeah, that's, that's grief or, oh, that's, that's embarrassment. That's shame. That's whatever. And then navigating it and doing something with it rather than just brushing, suppressing it, because we know that what we suppress actually grows and doesn't just go away as as easy as that would be to kind of be nice if it worked that way, but it doesn't. And noticing, naming and navigating. So then Mm. what do I do with that? And that's the hard part. I think we can get pretty well versed in noticing our emotional state. Mm -hmm. I think we can get really well versed in naming it if we study that. But I think that last piece, and maybe that's part of what positive psychology is also helping us try to figure out is then what do we do with that? Is it is it a messenger? Are we just using that to take action? Do we need to sit with it? Do we need to talk to someone? Do we need to move our bodies? Do we need to get outside? How are we going to process that emotion? So digesting it like food, taking what we need from it, but not getting it stuck in us, but also not pushing it away or repelling it. So. Oh, I, yes. (laughs) Yes to all of that. That's why we're doing this podcast as well, which is how do we name it? How do we put the language? But you're so right that that's only going to take us so far. If we don't actually process, release, move it through the body, then it gets mm-hmm. stuck. It does. Yeah. And as anyone, myself included, who's had a lifelong 
journey, I like to call it. I don't like to call it a struggle or a battle, but a lifelong journey with anxiety. I very much know what happens when, and I think again, going back to our, you know, everything circles back, going back to that little kid that kind of suppressed a lot of emotions and wanted to look strong for everyone and my brothers and then became the helper. And I don't think I was really good at digesting emotion. I think I was really good at suppressing or pushing away mm-hmm. or, and I think that's something that as an adult, I've really learned. And in my hardest times, it is, I know we all feel super called sometimes to just not feel that super uncomfortable feeling, but I will say that I think we've, you know, the only way out is through that whole saying of, of mm-hmm. just being with those emotions has taught me the most and has actually allowed me to, I think, get some of those emotions out of my body. Cause yeah, if you just keep stuffing them in there, they tend to stick around and show up in unlikely places that you, yeah. Yeah. How does anxiety show up for you nowadays? Is it still a part of your life? Is it? I've come to terms with anxiety will always be a part of my life. As much as I would not wish upon the experience, you know, what I've experienced, it's very physical for me and it shows up in my body as breathlessness, as not being able to just breathe or, or just wanting to crawl out of my own skin. It was always a very physical expression for me. And so I would never wish that upon anyone, but I also have learned, I guess, to befriend it. I used to think in some ways that my body was turning against me, that it was, why do I just get in these states that I can't breathe and and what's wrong with my body and why is it turning on me this way? But I started to realize that it was actually talking to me and I, it wasn't turning on me. It was actually just shouting at me like, Hey, listen, you're not processing this. Hey, listen, you're saying yes to things you should be saying no to. Hey, listen, you can't always be the helper. Sometimes you have to be the helpies. Hey, all the, whatever it was, Hey, listen, this situation is not healthy for you. So I do think my relationship with it, I still feel those, you know, I think you have kind of patterns in your body and I still have those feelings where I can't catch my breath or, you know, even last night I was laying in bed. I don't usually drink a ton of caffeine. I had caffeine a little bit later in the day and I was just feeling very anxious in my body. Mm -hmm. I felt very, I was trying to watch Hocus Pocus 2 with my son in bed, (gasps) which should be a really joyful experience. And it was, but I also, yeah, hey, anxiety, there you are. So I, I think I've maybe made more of a relationship with it in a different way and try to listen to it and definitely try to double down on what it's telling me. Cause it generally is telling me something. I, I don't de- necessarily get into those high alert states without maybe it's my mind. Maybe I'm sometimes telling myself a story, but it's still, uh, there's something being alerted in my body. So I try to listen to it more and not necessarily work against it. But yeah, it's been a lifelong process and it's still a learning day to day. Was there anything you had to do last night to help yourself Mm -hmm. through that moment? And I love that you brought up caffeine because I can't drink caffeine. Yeah, I just can't drink any of it because I have anxiety. And for me, and I've known that caffeine was an issue since I was a child, you know, yeah. My sister and my now husband, they would drink Mountain Dew. And I mean, even as a child, I couldn't drink caffeine. So 
Yeah. And I, my body also probably shouldn't drink, (laughs) shouldn't (laughs) drink caffeine. Doesn't mean I always listen to that. And I've tried to really wean down. I drink half calf coffee, but I I love tea. I love hot tea, cold tea. So sometimes I'll still have a little Mm -hmm. bit of caffeine, but what I, yes, I certainly had a discussion with myself in in that moment, (laughs) as I always do when I start to feel these feelings and I slowed my breathing down. Definitely. I mean, just obviously the, the most simple way whenever we're overwhelmed or feeling anxious is to slow down the breath and to have your exhale be longer than your inhale. So I did, you know, a few of my standard, it's almost like automatic at this point, I get into that feeling and automatically I shift my breathing process and try to slow my exhale down to longer. And then I just, you know, a lot of it's just self-talk, you know, a lot of, you can talk yourself into things and you can talk yourself out of them. Not always easily, but yeah, a lot of it's just like, okay, you're cool. We're laying in bed. We're watching Hocus Pocus. This is a, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is great. This is where you want to be. Just breathe a little slower. Oh yeah. You had caffeine. It's probably why your body's a little bit more mm-hmm. wired. So a lot of it's a conversation with myself and, you know, we're an audience up there of one. So I do a lot of talking to myself and then I'm I'm always fascinated that someone else is listening. Do you ever think about that process? Like I'm saying something, but I'm also listening. So is it anyways, it's a whole other conversation, but so just a conversation and and some breathing. And usually on, if I'm not too, you know, wired, I can generally kind of take myself down easily, but if there's obviously a big emotional event or something else going on, it might take a little longer to, Mm -hmm to have that conversation. That is so helpful. Very helpful. Thank you. Well, let's do some rabbit fire. Let's, let's go there. What's I know you have been reading. You and I probably could match how many (laughs) personal development books we have. So what's your favorite book? And it may not even be personal development, but what's your favorite book? Yeah. That question felt impossible at first, but I really do (laughs) think, I really do think that a book that I would say has such emotional meaning to me has been a companion and a, a book that I pick up over and over again is Mark Nepo's The Book of Awakening. I don't know if you're Ooh. familiar with that book. It's a book. I, mm. Mark Nepo is amazing. And ev- it's a book of daily entries. And they're just, you know, 365 of them. They start with a small quote that he puts in there. That's always exactly what I needed to hear. And then there's a little story or a parable or a just some sort of musing on life that is so exactly, again, timed for what I need, always relevant. And then he always has a little exercise at the end of them, like a little meditation or something to think about. I gift that book to everyone. That book sometimes has been part of my daily practice where I read it every day. Sometimes I just grab it off the shelf because yeah. I need something and I almost always find what I need in his words. So that would be my favorite book, probably. I love that. I'm going to add that to my list. I don't have it. I'll put it in the show notes in oh, case so anyone good. wants to you see know what? it. I love to gift that book. I will send you a copy. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Thank you. What are you currently reading? And I imagine you're probably reading more than one thing right now. <laughs> I am. And I actually joined my neighborhood book club. I was in it a while ago. And then I was reading so much for work and you know, just personal interest. And I really wanted to have more non-fiction or more fiction books because I read so much nonfiction. So I still have to pick up the book of the month. I haven't grabbed that yet, but for my book club. So I do still read fiction books and I do love, I, I uh, still find the lesson in them somehow, but 
I'm currently reading, it was a recommendation. I went down to that new bookstore in uh, downtown, the Parthenon, I think Parthenon. it's called. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the guy recommended it. And it's so funny because after he recommended it, now I keep hearing about it everywhere, but it's Braiding Sweetgrass, which is oh, so good. I might have to put that as my new favorite book at some Ugh. point, but mm-hmm. it's so good. I don't know if you've read it, but it's this botanist that also, she blends science of plants with her own indigenous <sighs> and spiritual roots as a Native American and the lessons. I'm just such a believer in nature as our greatest mm-hmm. teacher. And it's it's just beautifully written. So I'm quite a few chapters in. So that's one of them that I'm just loving. So yeah, Braiding Sweetgrass. Yes. She's on my list to get yes. on this podcast. So oh, I, yeah. To. Yeah. Yeah. What is one thing you know for sure? <laughs> so I tried to leave that question to, I feel like even when I think I know something for sure, even a moment later, I might not know that for sure. You know, like I feel like I'm always questioning what I think I know is truth, but I think I know for sure that I have more to learn than I have to teach. I think, I think we all do. I think that's, mm. there's a journey to be had. And and that if we stay open and curious to it, that we will find, find our way. So yes, I think I always have more to learn than I have to teach. Mm. Love that. Do you have a favorite quote, a poem, something you want to leave us with? Sure. So I was going to read Mary Oliver's The Journey because I'm a big Mary Oliver lover. Yes. And I love that poem and it was came to me at a time that I felt like I really needed it. But I'm embracing the emotional expedition. And I'm gonna okay. read I'm gonna read, I'm gonna embrace bravery and read a poem that I wrote myself. <gasps> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I came across this poem, just a slight bit of background. I run, and I always say that running is both my meditation and my medication. Also Mm. a big fan of actual sitting meditation and medication if needed, all for you being on your own journey and what you need. But I wrote this poem actually 320 weeks ago to be exact, because I wrote it and I put it on my Instagram and I don't, maybe once or twice in my life have I actually read a poem out loud that I've written. So Mm. it's a poem about running, but it's also a poem about life. Okay. And I wrote it when I was out on a run, I was training for a marathon and, and running has really saved my life in many ways. So it's called one step at a time. And it goes, I run one step at a time, one step stronger, one step freer, one step closer to the person I believe in one step further from the place I used to be in. Sometimes I run from pain sometimes. So I can feel it coursing through my veins to bring quiet to the noise that never ends to shout my secrets on an endless trail with friends, to sweat, to fly, to breathe until I almost die, to remind myself that I am still alive. And when I think I can't possibly take one step more, I run one step at a time. Oh, I'm (laughs) receiving that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for receiving it Mm. and creating a space where I felt comfortable to share it because I don't often, Mm. yeah, I don't think I've ever read that out loud until this very moment. So. So incredibly beautiful. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you for this conversation. I'll have all of your information in the show notes. You can find her Instagram at head underscore northbound. Her website is headnorthbound.com. She has a beautiful offering coming to the central New York area very soon, which we're excited about. And 
we will be sharing all of that information as it unfolds. But you are truly a light. And I'm so grateful Mm -hmm. to know you and to have this conversation and share you with the rest of the world. Oh, Meg, I feel so much the same. And I just always love talking to you. So how fun that we have a recorded version of that. Yes. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Meg. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're ready to dive deeper into your own emotional expedition, I invite you to join me in an intimate eight-week virtual book study of Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And in case you're not quite ready to join the study, I wanted to share a free offering that I often suggest to people as a little bit of a compass to get them started on their emotional journey, the meditation to alleviate stress. You can find the meditation and the book study linked below. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for listening. And if you loved this episode, will you please share it with a friend or two? Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you're sure to never miss a single episode. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.